Morning everyone, a very warm welcome to the Sunday service of FCC. I hope the week has been kind to you. Um, but regardless, I hope that today's service will be a time of rest, recovery and learning for everyone. So if I may invite you, just taking a moment this morning, turning to one another, saying a word of greeting, perhaps a smile or a nod, that would be great. But also to extend our welcome to those of you who are joining us online uh, with the live stream. Do drop in a, a word of greeting and hello and our producers will definitely be there to uh, graciously welcome you as well. So let us prepare our time together uh, with a call to worship. Today is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let, Let us, us be, be glad, glad this day for life, for breath, and for freedom to worship. Blessed are you who come in the name of the Lord. We, we come, come to bring our gifts of praise and gratitude to the God of all creation. God is good. And in God's work, we find our strength. We sing of all God's wonderful works. Let us give thanks and praise to the Lord. Uh, please rise and as we join our uh, in body or spirit or in spirit as we join our voices together to worship. Spirit out, your spirit out, your spirit out, your spirit out. 
Captives free as I stand. 
Uh, please be seated. Morning, church. Uh, my name is Mark, and I'll be leading prayer for today. Uh, so for today's prayer, um, I'll start off with um, collective prayer uh, before pausing for some time for you to you know, lift out your own cares and concerns uh, to the Lord uh, before coming together again as a group uh, to close off in prayer. Okay? Um, so during this time uh, when we pray, uh, please feel free to close your eyes and find a way that is comfortable for you. Um, but if you don't feel comfortable closing your eyes, you can always maybe just rest your gaze on a neutral space before you. So let's uh, prepare ourselves uh, for a time of prayer. Just take a few breaths in your own time. As you breathe, Feel of the sense of a space around you. And with each breath, allow yourself to rest deeper in the presence of God. Gracious and loving God, you are ever present in our lives. You surround us and you comfort us, holding us as do the arms of a loving parent, lover, loved one, carrying us through the ups and downs of life. compassionate and loving God. You hear us, our needs and our wants, those that are good for us and those that are maybe sometimes not so good for us. Gently, your Holy Spirit counsels us to discern with wisdom and honesty how best to live our lives as your children and also as your disciples. So here as we pray, as we bow before you once again, we lift up our hearts and minds to you in a posture of surrender. Thank you, Lord for this community here in FCC, called together by the good news of the gospel and called to practice as disciples the way of Christ. Thank you for the efforts of each child of yours here in FCC. 
from the small gestures of love we experience each week through little interactions we have in church, and also big projects and acts of service, like the upcoming uh, anniversary service. Thank you for the friends and family that we have, and especially family not just by birth, but also by choice that we have here and in our lives. Thank you for blessing us with each one of them, those who care for us with the best of intentions. Thank you for the times of work and rest, times of striving and just collapsing. Thank you for the experiences that we have and especially the difficult times in our lives where we may feel dry and we may feel lacking. May your love, may your spirit encourage us to use these experiences as fertile ground for your love and your power to flourish. Thank you, Lord, for your ever-present faithfulness in our lives. Hold us as we take the next few moments to rest in your presence and lift up the concerns and cares of our hearts to you. As a church, may we continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of your word. May we grow to be ever more skillful and wise in how we practice your word within and beyond this church. May we continually die to ourselves to take up the cross daily as did Jesus and follow him humbly and faithfully, not just as individuals, but also as a love and faith community here in FCC. Lord, surely you know that we live in difficult times of political tensions and economic hardships. Surely you know those among us here today and online who are downtrodden and in need. As a church, we lift each one of us who is in need up to you. We ask for mercy and we ask for your provisions. 
for times that we have gone astray, guide us. For moments of need, grant us what is good for us. Grant us also courage to face our fears, hope when we are lost, healing when we are hurt or ill, inner peace in the midst of chaos. Lord, we ask that you shower your blessings on all of us. Guide us and give us the strength we need to continually go forth to do your will in our lives, in this church, and also beyond this church. So that when we run the good race, we know that when our time is up, we are ready to go. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
So, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is David, and I'm honored to be speaking to you today on a rather weighty and unhappy topic, hell. As always, we'll be using Menti to allow all of you to participate in the sermon. So, please use your phone to log in right now at fcc.ly slash menti, or scan the QR code on the screen. When you share your answers on Menti, I truly believe not only you'll get more out of the sermon, but others may also find your answers helpful to them. So I invite each and every one of you who's watching online or on site to please join in. So while you're doing that, um, please pray with me. Dear Lord, as we examine this difficult subject this morning, may our hearts be held tight in your loving embrace because we know perfect love casts out fear. May everything we learn lead us to know you more deeply, to love you and others better. Amen. So today is the last sermon in our sermon series, Faithfully. I've called it, What the Hell? Because we're going to be talking about hell. And we've been re-looking at doctrines which we may have previously accepted without question and taking the time to examine them afresh. So we'll get started with today's topic. Now, hell is something I'm sure we have all heard of, whether we grew up in church or whether you only know it as a curse word. And it's not an easy topic to talk about. So let's start with a question. What do you believe about hell? And you can type in three words into the boxes. They'll appear as a cloud here. Absence, fire, eternal conscious torment, separation from God, a sense of God's love, a deep fire hole, away from God, eternal sufferings, other people, burn, pain, bad people, bad people being other people, sheol, Gehenna, okay, we're going to talk about those. Punishment. Dante. Dumping ground. Suffering. Hades. Scary. Brimstone and fire. Non-believers ending. Sin. Not able to be with God. Away from God. Thank you for all your answers here. So as, as we can see, there are a variety of ways we understand hell. That, but the, next question, the real question is, how does our view of hell or your view of hell affect how you see God, see yourself, and see others? So we will come back to these questions. And today, I want to share with you three things. Firstly, what does the Bible say about hell? Secondly, who goes to hell? And thirdly, then, how should we live? So we'll start with what the Bible says about hell. And do you know, actually, what Scripture says about hell? Because we've all heard a lot of things, right? But there are actually only four words which are translated as hell in the Bible. And we're going to take a look at each word, because through these words, we can actually trace the evolution of the idea of hell. So the first word, in fact, in the word cloud, was Sheol, and that's pronounced she-ol, sheol. This is an ancient Hebrew word. 
It's used 66 times in the Bible. And any time you read the word hell in the Old Testament, you are actually reading Sheol. And this is an ancient Jewish concept for the place where all people went after death, both the good and the bad. And people believed it to actually physically exist below the surface of the earth. And it was a dark and joyless place where you sort of cease to be a real person. You, you kind of become a shade. Uh, you don't remember anything. You don't do anything. And the key point to note here is that the Israelite people of the Old Testament had no concept for eternal punishment after death. So let me say that again for emphasis. Our modern idea of hell did not exist at all in the writings of the Old Testament. All right? Mind-blowing already. So where did this all come from? Okay, so now we move to the second word, Hades. This is a Greek word. It's used in the New Testament 11 times. Um, it actually comes from Greek mythology, but in the Bible, it's pretty much used in the same way as the Old Testament Sheol. So it refers to the grave. It refers to the place where the dead reside, uh, or where the, sometimes where the wicked suffer after death, but it's never used as the final destination of anyone, whether the good or the bad. In Revelation, it actually says Hades itself will, be, will end because it will be cast into the lake of fire, right? So that will be the end of Hades as well. So then the third word is Tartarus. Um, this is only used once in the whole Bible in 2 Peter, uh, and it, it comes from Greek mythology as well. Uh, in Greek mythology, it was a place where the titans were kept imprisoned. You know, in Greek mythology, there was a war between the titans and Zeus and all that. So anyway, Peter borrows this word to describe a place where sinful angels are presently kept imprisoned. And it's an interesting example of how Greek mythology has influenced Christian thought. But we don't need to go into it too much because it's only used once. Now, the most important word is Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a Greek word. It's used 12 times in the New Testament, and it is the main word that Jesus uses for hell. So it's the most important word that we need to study. It's actually a Greek version of a Hebrew word, Gehenom. And Gehenom is the Valley of Hinnom, which is a real place outside the city of Jerusalem. And I will show you a picture of it. So uh, it's actually a very beautiful park. Can I get the next slide, please? Thank you. Yes, yeah, so this is Gehenom today, a very lovely place, and you can go and visit hell yourself, uh, have a walk in the hell. Um, it's a very nice place, but in Jesus' time, it was not such a nice place. In the Old Testament, um, it was a place where some of the ancient Israelites practiced child sacrifice to the god Molech. So it was considered to be a cursed place. And in Jesus' time, some think that it was used as a rubbish dump for burning the city's garbage and burning dead bodies of criminals and so forth. So they had this sort of mental association of this place uh, with constantly burning fires and worms and things like that. Um, and in fact, some people actually believe that the gateway to hell was here. So from here, there was a tunnel that led under the earth into hell, which was very, very large underground. Um, and so basically, over time, it had become associated as a place of spiritual purification for the wicked dead. And so the word Gehenna was in fact not invented by Jesus himself. It was used by the rabbis during the second temple period. So this was the period where Israel had been exiled from their land and gone to Babylon and all that. And during this period, um, their nation had suffered greatly, right? They lost their temple, they lost their land, and they started to rethink everything they knew about God. 
And so during this period, they came up with the idea of a resurrection and a final judgment. And so these are the writings you see in Daniel and so forth. And they also came up with the idea that Sheol was not just a place for everyone, but it had different compartments. Gehenna for the wicked people and paradise for the righteous. And so uh, according to most sources, um, Gehenna in this time was used as a place of purification and punishment, but for no greater than 12 months. Some even said it was uh, 3 to 12 months. Um, and also they got Sundays off, right? So during the Sabbath, nobody was tortured in Gehenna. They would turn off the fire, okay? <laughs> All right, so both of them believed that it was temporary. Um, and then afterwards, your soul would go up to Olam Haba, the world to come, which is like their idea of the future paradise, right? Or your soul would just be utterly destroyed if it was wicked. So very few of them actually believed in eternal damnation. And because Jesus himself was a Jew and a rabbi, and his listeners are familiar with this word, when we read it in the New Testament, this is kind of what they were thinking about. Okay? Now, when we think about hell, we think, oh, eternal torment. We are superimposing our idea of hell back onto the writings of Scripture. But their understanding of it was not exactly what we understood. Okay, so that's very important to note. Now, uh, we do need to mention Revelation because this book is very influential in the development of hell because it contains imagery of the lake of fire that, you know, they're tormented day and night forever and ever. And so, yes, this is a lot of where our idea of hell comes from. But the key thing to note about Revelation is that it is packed with metaphors, okay? We've got seven-headed dragons, leopards, you know, um, all kinds of pregnant women and, you know, all sorts of things, right? So it's all metaphor and it was politically coded language. A lot of it was targeting the Romans and trying to use this sort of secret code to talk about things that were happening at that time. So we do understand it as metaphor and even when it comes to the part of the lake of fire, we suddenly take that as literal, but actually it may also have been metaphor. Okay, so, over, so these are the writings of scripture and over the next 15 centuries, Christian writers have developed and embellished even more on hell into the idea we have of it today. So this is the Apocalypse of Peter. Okay, Revelation was called the Apocalypse of John. Now, there's another um, document which did not actually end up being part of the Bible called the Apocalypse of Peter. And this came from the second century, around 150 to 200 AD. And it kind of represents the ideas that were sort of going around at that time. And so in this document, heaven was described as super white, covered in flowers, and all the people would spend their time singing prayers together, whereas hell was super dark, and there were lots and lots of creative punishments for the damned. So think about, you know, have you ever been to Hopa Villa? How many of you have been to Hopa Villa? <laughs> so for those who don't know Singapore Hopa Villa, it's a theme park where there's lots of statues of people being tortured, sawed in half, chopped, you know, just very, very gruesome kinds of things to scare children, you know, to do right, don't go there, you see. So in this Apocalypse of Peter, it was very similar to Hopa Villa. Your punishment will be tailored to what you had particularly done wrong. Uh, in fact, it was kind of homophobic as well. And a lot of these ideas came from pagan sources, Homer, Plato, Virgil and other traditions. So these are Greek and Roman writers. And then we go forward a few more centuries. In the 13th century, we have Thomas Aquinas. So he came up with the idea that hell had four levels. Um, limbo, so if you've ever heard the word limbo, it comes from there. So limbo was the nicest part. 
where the Old Testament saints had to wait until judgment. And some believe that Jesus descended into hell. He went down there and he let them all get out. Okay, so that was called limbo. And there was another part of limbo called limbo of the unbaptized babies. So if you are unbaptized, your baby, you haven't done anything wrong. You still have to go to hell, but you'll be in the nice part of hell. Um, you know, angels will take care of you, they'll feed you, you know. So they had this idea of different sections. Then you had purgatory where people would sort of be temporarily punished, but eventually they'll be released. And then Gehenna, which is the part where you're stuck forever. So that was uh, Thomas Aquinas. And then around that same time, we had Dante's Inferno. So this was a work of fiction, a poet, a poem that um, sort of described nine levels of hell and lots and lots more of creative punishments. And then we also had, in the 17th century, John Milton's Paradise Lost, where we get the idea of devils, pitchforks, red guys with horns, and all that stuff. So remember, all this stuff is not really in the Bible, but it was sort of added on over time. Uh, and the real question is, why keep adding to the story? So I'll suggest two reasons. The first is fear. Okay, fear is a great motivator to get people to behave morally and to follow the church and its teachings. Okay, and we find this same practice across all cultures and civilizations, like Hopa Villa, right? You bring your kids there to scare them. Uh, now, the Vikings had an idea of hell called Helheim, and it was a freezing cold place guarded by an impassable river and a monstrous dog, and it was reserved for everyone who didn't die a glorious death in battle. Okay, so you can kind of see what values a culture, you know, they value, right? If you do this, you can go to heaven. If this, you go to hell. Uh, then in the Zoroastrians also had an idea of um, the Chinvat Bridge. So in this idea, at the end of your life, you have to cross this long bridge. And at the end of the bridge, if you have lived a good life, there'll be a beautiful woman, and she welcomes you across the bridge. But if you've lived a bad life, there's a, an old hag, uh, and then the bridge becomes really narrow and you fall off into the house of lies and you suffer torment, loneliness, but eventually you do get out. Okay? So, so anyway, the idea of an eternal punishment after death was not unique to Christianity and it actually predates Christianity by many centuries. Okay, so number one, fear. Everyone uses it. Second, I think there is actually a deep part of us that wants others to go to hell. Sorry to say. Because when we see evil in the world, we feel like, yes, we must take it seriously, right? We can't just brush it off. There is harm, there is pain, and we somehow need to respond to that, right? We don't like the idea that other people can get away with it without any consequences and get away with it forever. Like, we want to balance the scales. But again, this is something we wish on other people, not ourselves. And, we always, and I think I preached a few weeks ago, right? We tend to minimize the harm that we do and magnify the harm others do. So the very idea that justice must require punishment, I believe, is a very human idea. It's almost never for the good of the person being punished. It's for the good of society to create deterrence and reduce crime. But there is a better way, and it's called restorative justice. So retributive justice focuses on assigning consequences to those individuals who have committed a crime. Now, restorative justice focuses on repairing the harm done by the perpetrator and rebuilding that person's relationship with the victim and society. And so, in our country, justice does tend to be retributive. You commit a crime, you get a consequence, and it's not for your good. It's actually to scare other people not to do the same thing. 
Whereas restorative is trying to re reconcile what you have done and bring you back into community. And so I would imagine if we as human beings can actually think of a better way of justice, then why not God, right? So to sum up, we've seen how the ideas of the afterlife in Jewish thought have changed over the centuries from Sheol to Gehenna to what we now think of as hell with eternal suffering and torture and how hell has sort of become a hodgepodge of traditions and horror stories from various cultures and times. And the point here, the key point I want to make here is that the Gehenna that Jesus spoke of may not at all be the hell we imagine and has been embellished over the years quite possibly to keep the masses obedient, maintain religious control, and satisfy our human desire for retribution. So, perhaps the idea of eternal punishment really stems not from God's justice, but from humanity's pain. And let me say that again. The, the idea of eternal punishment really stems not from God's justice, but from humanity's pain. So now we come to part two. I mean, since we've seen how hell has evolved through the ages, if you really believe that, then the real big question is, how do you avoid going there? Who goes there? And there, I want to share a few various theological views of hell. Um, and to make it easier to understand, I'm going to present it as stages of my own life, because my own view of hell has sort of shifted over the years as well. So first of all, this is me in primary school. Uh, and I started going to church when I was six years old because I was invited by my best friend in primary one. And I loved going there because they, it was fun and they gave me free stickers. And they also taught me lots of things, including about hell. So at the time, hell seemed to me sort of like this, very scary. I had this mental picture of eternal fire, devils, physical pain, screaming, and sort of torture, right? Uh, so... It was sort of the first reason I actually became a Christian was out of fear of going to hell. Um, and I recall a conversation I had with my own son when he was five. So at that time, we were going to a traditional church, and he attended Sunday school as well. And his favorite possession in all the world was his bear. But one day, we nearly left it at church because he had hid it somewhere, and then he forgot where he hid it. So we were looking all over the place, and then finally we found it. So I said to him, if we left Bear at church, that would have been the worst thing in the world. And then he replied, no, the worst thing in the world for me is if I went to hell. <laughs> so I was like, whoa, where did you get that? I said, I guess that's true. But, you know, it's funny that, that those ideas seeped into his head so young, you know. And there's nothing like hell to actually scare a new generation of kids into the church. <laughs> okay, so then as a teenager, I started going to a mega church in Singapore. And I was also very active in Youth for Christ. So we would go out on the streets on weekends and we would just approach random people and then using this little book called The Four Spiritual Laws. So you can see a picture of that there. And we would explain to everyone that, first of all, all of us have sinned, right? So we're on one side. And the sin separates us from God. So there's this chasm. And Jesus is that bridge to reconcile us to God, allows us to cross over the bridge. But... Behind this good news, right, was also the idea that those who reject the offer will end up in hell. So actually that childhood view was actually still there. Um, and it kind of made us feel this urgency. We've got to go out and tell as many people as possible because we don't want them to go there. And the way we thought about it was that God is so holy, right? God is so holy, God cannot abide the presence of sin. 
So at that time, I thought, okay, that's what the teaching is. But now I look back, I feel, actually, that's somewhat illogical. Because we sin now, and yet God's Spirit dwells inside us. So clearly, God doesn't really have a problem of abiding with sin, right? So this diagram is known as Arminianism. It's a theological term that means we can choose to or reject God. And in some way, it sort of makes sense because we probably all feel like we have chosen God at some point in small ways or big ways, right? We make daily decisions. Should I follow God's way or just go my own way? So we kind of feel we have that free will to choose God or to say no to God. That's one way of seeing who goes to hell. Okay, the next one is me as a young adult. So now I was in, uh, I graduated from university, I was working in America, and I attended a Presbyterian church. So there I learned some new ideas, which was the idea of election, predestination, which is known as Calvinism, because it was started by the Protestant uh, reformer John Calvin in the 16th century. So in this view, God is sovereign, right? God has all the power. And on our own, we are born in sin, we have no way, we're incapable of choosing God. God has to actually make us choose God. And, and God only does that for some people. You see, he picks out some, others are not. And you cannot say no. Okay, if God calls you, you, it's irresistible. You have to go to God. And also, you cannot lose your salvation. So when I learned this, then I thought, okay, that makes sense. Yes, I, feel, I believe God is in control of everything. I also believe God can influence our choices. And then I read this verse in Ephesians 2. It says, by grace, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so it says, if faith is not from ourselves, it's a gift from God, then even though you thought your free will led you to choose God, actually, God decided who was saved. And it makes sense because the process of how you come to know God usually involves circumstances beyond your control. Right, where you were born, maybe a friend, family member approached you. You were in the right place at the right time. So God engineered the whole thing and led you to God. But that just doesn't seem very fair. Because why me? Why not other people? What about all the people that God didn't choose? What about all the people who were born in another, let's say a Muslim country, or they were born before Jesus, or all that, right? How is that fair? So when I asked people about that, they, no answers were satisfying. They would tell me, well, you know, maybe it doesn't seem like justice, but uh, God's ways are higher than your ways. You don't understand, so don't ask. Okay? Just stop asking. <laughs> it's a mystery. Just take it on faith that God is just. But basically, we just don't know. We don't know. We can't answer these questions. So now I bring you to my current state, which is being a parent. So I have two kids. Uh, and there they are as children, and now this is where they are more recently, uh, young adults. And, well, actually, one's still 13, he's a kid, but he's, he's become a teenager. So as I watch them growing up, I found my view of God has, has vastly changed because of becoming a parent. I found new depths of love that I had for them that I never felt before, and that has forever shaped how I understand how God feels about me and how about, about every other person ever made, because we are all God's children, whether we know it or not. And a good parent would, maybe at times, they will allow their children to experience the consequences of poor behavior, and to let them experience pain. But this is always for the child's good, so they can learn and grow. A good parent 
would never ever condemn their children to eternal torment, no matter what they had done. So how much more so God? Now this writer Susie Ambrose, in her article in medium.com, she tells a story and she says, imagine you're watching a movie where a father and a child are in an argument. The child is hurt and confused and runs away from the father, but the child is about to run off a cliff, but doesn't realize it. Or maybe the child realizes there's a cliff, but still keeps running. Would a father let their child fall if they could stop it? And the answer is no, because especially when there are great danger and suffering involved, love protects at all costs. You would do everything in your power to keep your loved ones safe and happy always, even if they rejected you and you respected their wish not to be with you. This is real, sacrificial love. So if fallible human parents would not condemn their children, how could God do so? God's primary characteristic is love. So maybe hell is not like we've been taught. Okay, and so this leads to two other ways of looking at hell. One is called annihilationism, also called extinctionism or destructionism. And this is the belief that after the last judgment, all damned humans and fallen angels, including Satan, will be totally destroyed, cremated, and their consciousness extinguished rather than suffering forever in hell. And people who take this position might point to verses such as Matthew 10, which says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So they point to the, these words like destroy, say, God's not to keep you alive and torture you for eternity. Rather, he will just annihilate you completely. So it's sort of a painless end to your existence. Okay, so that's one view of hell. And another view is universalism. So this is the idea that because of God's mercy, every person will be reconciled to God in the end. And that if there is a punishment, it does not last forever. So in this view, there may be a hell, but it's empty. And people who take this position might point to verses such as 1 Corinthians 15. As all die in Adam so all will be made alive in Christ. And 1 Timothy 4, we have put our hope in the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So there are many places in scripture which say God wills that all shall be saved. And universalism supports the idea that God's will will triumph over our stubbornness even in the afterlife. Now, there is a fifth way of looking at it, and I would say it's the metaphorical way. And this is to say that hell is a place of our own creating. Okay, so the previous four views assume that hell is a real place. But other people may say, no, hell is a metaphor. And all this dramatic imagery, the fire, the torture, all that, it's actually meant to convey the serious nature of the need to align our life appropriately. So those who hold this view might say that um, hell symbolizes the emotional pain of being separated from God. And this means no one literally goes to hell, but there are times where all of us live through hell on earth when we become distant from God's love. So to do a quick recap, we've looked at five different views on hell. So the first two say hell is real and it's very full because although we have the free will to choose God, very few choose God. Or God only chooses a few and the rest are all in hell. The second two views say hell is empty. Right? Either God will just extinguish those who don't go to heaven 
or all will eventually get to be reconciled with God. And then the last view is that hell is actually not a real place, but it's a more a psychological state of remorse and separation. So FCC is home to a wide variety of spiritual backgrounds. Um, many of you have come from many different spiritual traditions. So to some of you, hell will probably remain an important part of your worldview. But maybe for others like me, it's something that's always felt a bit illogical or unsettling and doesn't fit with the character of God that's revealed elsewhere in the scripture. So what I want to say today is it's actually okay whatever view you hold. The main thing is whether it leads you into greater love for God and for yourself and for others and not to judge those who believe differently. Right? Hold on not to the dogma. Don't hold on to the dogma, but allow room for multiple interpretations. Okay? And so my question today to you is which of these resonates with you? Or maybe none of them. What is, has anything kind of been new to you today or interesting? And if so, what um, resonates with you? I am an evangelical universalist. Nice. <laughs> that sounds like an oxymoron, but I don't know. The dog, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hell is metaphorical, and all will eventually be reconciled. God is gracious and loving, and everyone has a chance to be with God. Metaphorical. We'll find out what it means when, if we see it. Hell does not consist of everlasting conscious torment. No one knows for sure, right? So prepare for the worst scenario. Ha <laughs> ha. That's called Pascal's wager. Just in case there's a hell, you better believe in God. Because if you're wrong, Actually, nothing happens, right? But if you're right, yeah, you can go to heaven. <laughs> but that actually doesn't make sense because um, the Christian Bible is not the only theological, it's not the only religion, right? If you really want to be safe, you've got to believe in all the gods. And then you make sure that some of the gods don't see you secretly praying to the other gods. <laughs> then you make sure you cover all your bases, okay? But in the end, yeah, you've got to pick one, right? The metaphorical view, heaven or hell, is here and now, depending on what we do for one another, I think. Yeah, so we can experience heaven in our community and the love of God. We can experience hell when we're separated from God. Uh, hell is a recent concept. I guess recent in the sense of the last 1,500 years, but that it's, it wasn't in the Old Testament, that is true. A rest place before God brings us to paradise so it's sort of a temporary place, but we all go to paradise. No way to know in this life, but surprised to see Jesus' word and concept was very different from what I thought. Yes! <laughs> then the research was helpful. Okay. Because sometimes we're just taught, huh? you read your Bible, the word hell, you don't know where it was translated from. And then sometimes they translate the word Gehenna, grave. Then sometimes they translate hell. So actually the translator is making that theological interpretation in how they choose to translate the word. And their theological worldview is superimposed on the translation. So sometimes it's actually good to go back to the Greek. Are there any other 
if we scroll down. Sometimes it's humans that create hell on earth for others, whether deliberately or not. Very true. Often due to bad theology and philosophy, like Paul Pot. Yeah, hell on earth. War is hell. For many people, life on earth is hell. We'll think some more about how hell may be more from our desire for retribution than God's character. Yeah. Like, is there an answer to the problem of evil that doesn't need to involve torture? <laughs> right? Because evil is real, but do we really have to deal with it that way? Ultimately, no one knows. Better to admit that, and we are not told. Yeah. So hold your belief fairly lightly and allow room for others to believe different. The metaphorical, it's something I can accept given the lack of evidence for a physical hell. It's also most helpful for me for life in the now, yeah. Uh, hell is what is unhealed for us and what we do to others. Yeah, hell is from our, is pain. How we understand hell reflects our understanding of society at large, okay. Um, interesting to learn about the others. Hell is still a big place non-believers go. Okay, it's a big place that non-believers, hmm. The view is that is God's view. Okay, what is God's view? How do we know what God's view is? Okay, I guess you can say, well, God is love. So which of these fits with that? <laughs> uh, removing fear, does hell still matter? Yes, we are going to get to that in the next part. Occam's razor says metaphorical is the simplest and most logical explanation. Perhaps. I mean, if you believe in a worldview that doesn't involve the supernatural, then I suppose. Uh, of course, we don't really know their, the spiritual dimension of what actually is out there, so it's possible, but um, okay. All right, I, can, I think we can move on. So thank you for all your responses. I'm glad you're really engaging with this idea. And so the next part is, so where do we leave? What does that leave us today? Okay, maybe you're starting to think the hell you've been taught as a child isn't real or isn't like that. So then what? Right? If there's no hell, then of course these questions come up. If there's no hell, then what did Jesus save us from? If there's no hell, why should we tell people about God? If there's no hell, why not sin as much as we want? So let's tackle some of these. Okay, first of all, what did Jesus save us from? Now I think Pastor Myak. Pastor Pauline and Alvin have answered this in their previous few sermons. Okay, Jesus came to show us what God was like. Right? Jesus is our picture of God. God is somewhat abstract, remote, but Jesus is tangible, right? God with us. Jesus came to save us from being enslaved to sin and injustice. Right? Jesus came to show us the way, like, you know, as Alvin spoke last week about paying fair wages to workers even, giving food and drink fairly, that's saving us from being enslaved to injustice. And Jesus came to save us from being in shame, as Pauline said, that's keeping us alienated from God so that we can be reconciled to God. So this life, the eternal life that Jesus spoke about, isn't something we need to wait for until after death. We can experience it right now. Coming alive to God and experiencing God's presence, right, even here and now. And the flip side is also true. When we hurt others, when we act in self-destructive ways or we abuse the earth, we are experiencing a sort of death in our relationships, in our health, in our world. So we don't need hell for Jesus to save us. We have so many things we need to be saved from, even without hell. Okay, so secondly, why tell people about God? Okay, even without hell, you can still tell people about God because we want to give people hope, 
We want to give people purpose and healing through a relationship with God, through knowing God as their loving parent. And scaring people with hell is not the way because it actually paints a picture of God that's very hard to undo later. It's a distortion of God. Not God the divine and loving parent, but God the frightening and punishing judge. And so thirdly, why not sin as much as we want? So then the question I would ask here is, why are you not sinning? Is it just to avoid punishment? Is it just to avoid hell? Because that's not a very good reason. Right? So to answer that question, I want to share a diagram. And this is a, it's a sort of a framework by Lawrence Kohlberg on how children develop morally. And so what it means is there are three stages. Okay, so the bottom two are, are when we are children, we often, it's called pre-conventional morality. So you, we often behave well or avoid bad behavior to avoid punishment or to gain a reward. So we don't really have a personal sense of right and wrong yet, but we think that if something is good, it's if we get rewarded. And if it's, it's bad, if we get punished. Then as we get older, you go into the next two. It's called conventional morality. So then we learn that there are social rules and what others expect of us, like being a good son or a good daughter. And we're generally driven by earning the approval of others. So we may also understand that law and order is important. Like society has laws that maintain social order, so we need to follow those laws. Okay, that's called conventional morality. And then hopefully at some point we get to the highest level, which is post-conventional morality. So this is when you develop your own ethical principles and values, and you don't just do what society tells you to do. At this level, you may think about what is just not just for yourself, but also for others. And you follow your internal principles to determine what is right in any given situation. So a good example of this is when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He broke religious laws intentionally to demonstrate the well-being of that crippled man was more fundamentally important than keeping the Sabbath law. And I think it's pretty obvious that the doctrine of hell belongs to the lowest level of moral development. It's just to avoid punishment. And at some point in your spiritual journey, as we said in the mentee, it may no longer serve any helpful purpose. Because you're not following Jesus to avoid punishment or for a reward, but because it's simply the right thing to do. And you're guided by being Christ-like. You're guided by an inner compass and motivation and the law of love. So let's not be motivated by fear. John 1 says, There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. But the one who fears is not made perfect in love. So as we come to the end of this sermon series, I hope this sermon and others in the series have given you some food for thought. And please continue to explore any questions you might have with us, with the pastors, and other believers in your life. And most importantly, may your faith draw you into a deeper understanding of God's love and a deeper love for others. Amen. And I'm actually going to stay up here because I'm on communion. <laughs> so. so we come now to a time of Holy Communion. And we gather each Sunday at this table. Even though at this time we're not all physically together, the table of God's feast transcends time and space, because God's love transcends all boundaries. So this table recognizes no boundaries. 
Here at FCC, we celebrate an open table. This means you do not have to meet any criteria. You do not have to be a member of FCC. You do not have to be baptized. You need only to recognize that God's grace is sufficient. We are your people, God, called together in your love. We are your children, mother, called around the table of your word. We are your disciples, Lord, called to praise and give you thanks. We thank you, you good and gracious God, for calling us to be your people, for giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands to touch and bless our world. Even as your people, God, we are separated from ourselves, each other, and you, the creator of life. Let us confess our brokenness. As people caught in our tradition, we confess that we have helped perpetuate systems that deny the dignity and sacred worth of all sorts and conditions of persons. We have paid lip service to equality. Our lives are based on discrimination of the other. We have been our own worst enemies. We have failed ourselves, others, and we have failed you, God. Moved by your power, we accuse ourselves because we have not allowed you to form us as a new people. We confess our sin and we pledge to work for reconciliation with one another. We thank you, gracious God, for forgiveness and the chance to start again. We thank you, gracious God, for the gift of your spirit given to us in Jesus, in whom we are freed from the past and its oppression, in whom the gift is complete. Gracious God, you are the mother of creation and the father of all life. We are gathered as your people to thank you for your blessings, to receive your mercy and forgiveness, and to remember how Jesus died for us, accepting death to show his love for us and you. We remember, remember how, how Jesus, Jesus came, came to us, becoming one of us, born, born like us, of flesh and blood and bone, a fully human person like us in all things but sin. Remember how on the night before Jesus died, he gathered with his friends for one last meal. Siblings, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The person who aligns with me hungers no more, ever. Anyone eating this bread will not die, ever. This is my body, broken for you. Take, eat, remember me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. When you are joined with me and I with you, the harvest is sure to be abundant. I love you as I have been loved. Abide in my love. This is my blood shed for you. Take, drink, remember me. May I now invite the stewards to come forward and distribute the elements. And for those of you who are watching at home, now would be a great time for you to get your own elements to represent the bread and the wine so we can all partake together. For those of you who are new with us, uh, please hang on to the elements when you receive them, and then we will take them all together as one body.
together. Jesus, you are always present in our midst. You come to us simply, lovingly, humbly, in word and sacrament, in this bread and wine, and in the love we share with one another. Let us eat and drink of this bread and wine, remembering Jesus, his teaching, his life, his suffering, his death, and his rising to new life. Let us partake together. May I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and join me in this prayer of communion. Gracious and loving God, you have made us one in the body of Christ and nourished us at your table with holy food and drink. Thank, Thank you, you for, for feeding, feeding our, our hunger and, and relieving our thirst. With deep gratitude, we offer you our lives, our love, ourselves, gathered in Jesus by your life-giving spirit. May we become a new people, wholly pleasing to you, a people giving glory to your name. Amen. Please be seated. The stewards will come around and collect the cups. Please pass them to the aisles. So um, my heart did a little dance when you flashed uh, Kohlberg's morals, uh, stages of moral development. I think so. Basically, Lawrence Lawrence Kohlberg was an American psychologist who is best known for his work in the stages of moral development. That theory actually has had a very strong influence on my own theology as well as understanding of uh, spirituality because. David talked a lot about hell and kind of how it influences us because we may want to avoid punishment. But a question that I, I asked myself before is, if there was no promise of salvation or if there was no promise of eternal life, would we still believe in God? Because actually the promise of eternal life and as a, that being a reason for belief in God is actually at the level of self-interest. It's the, only the second stage of moral development. So that was a big question for me to ask over my, my journey. Is there, are there any, anything else that you know, can really um, explain why you know, our belief should be something so core and fundamental to us? So thank you very much, David. I think that was a really enlightening and quite thought-provoking uh, message. And a very warm welcome once again to the Sunday service of FCC. And where free in our name, Free Community Church stands for First Realize Everyone is Equal. We are a congregation who um, is inclusive and progressive. Um, so regardless of labels or any kind of background or things like that, um, you are always welcome here. And as you have seen from the message today, and through this sermon series, we are a congregation who dares to really explore, I think, <laughs> somewhat less conventional topics and also ask uh, more thought-provoking questions. So, um, especially welcome to our newcomers. I hope today's uh, sermon was not too uh, disturbing for you. But uh, we would like to reach out to you a bit more intentionally also um, to answer any questions you may have or introduce ourselves a little bit more. So 
please leave us your details. Uh, you can scan the QR code or access the website at uh, fcc.ly slash welcome. Um, and also to let you know if you are new to us, please try to uh, please do attend our newcomers meeting on the last Sunday of each month, which will be in on the twenty second of October this this month. So um, at that at that small meeting, you'll get to meet the pastors and some leaders and have any questions uh, you may have answered. So a brief update, given that it's the end of the month, on our financial um, um, positions. Um, very grateful and thankful for everyone's generosity and, and commitment. Um, there was an increase in the giving for the month of September. So we've closed the gap, but we, as you can see from the numbers, we are still about 7% behind in terms of the budget. So really want to uh, encourage everyone to very thoughtfully and prayerfully look into you know, how we can close that gap with our, with our giving. Um, so a few ways that we can um, uh, uh, contribute. Um, firstly, by cash, we will be taking up the offering in a moment uh, through the stewards. Secondly, uh, 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 encouragement actually really helps us in terms of planning and uh, the, base, the financial planning if, if uh, we receive more pledges or more regular uh, giving through standing instructions. So really convenient way to give as well. So um, bank, bank account details are there. Um, do kind of um, consider setting up a standing instruction on a monthly basis. Or you can scan the QR codes, which, which we will flash, or um, place or, or place on the uh, backs of the chairs in front of you um, so that you can give, uh, do the giving. So um, let me um, pray over the offering before we take up the offering. Please join me in prayer. God, you speak to us, sometimes in big ways, but in most times, in small ways, in the whispers. Help prepare our hearts to listen to what you have to say. Open our hearts to the whisperings that lead us where your will wishes. In gratitude, we thank you for the gifts and for your faithfulness in the blessings, big ways and small ways in our lives. Pray for the wisdom to guide our stewardship of the gifts that we receive as a community, that we may use it to best fulfill your will here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the stewards take up the offering. If you wish to give by cash, please just um, give a nod or indicate to the stewards and they'll come round to you. Okay, we can move on and we will move now into a time of announcements. Quite a few announcements this uh, week. So just to remind everyone, the TMAP project is uh, conducting its next collection drive um, and this will be active for, um, now until the end of October. This time round, it won't be food. Uh, they are collecting bags and apparels for adults as well as small electrical appliances. So um, the donations will go to um, needy um, transgender clients uh, that we have been serving. So just a note, we will not be collecting shoes and underwear and the items should be in good and usable condition. The drop-off date is all the way up 
until 29th of October um, and collection will be done on a weekly basis after uh, Sunday service. So there'll be a cart where you can place your, um, place your items inside. Any queries, please contact Kin at the contact number there. And next, uh, just an announcement for our SEED program. SEED stands for Settle Easily and Engage Deeply. Essentially, it's a very short, uh, time-limited, I think, four-week program um, that helps um, orientate new newcomers to FCC on some of our background history, our, our kind of uh, understanding about theology, some very basic level of uh, information that actually helps um, newcomers uh, integrate and join us uh, more easily. So next seed season 16 is actually going to begin on 15th of October. It's just held every Sunday immediately after service, um, no more than an hour at each time. Please register your interest at info at freecomchurch.org. And uh, we have two next announcements for after-service ministry. So the first is a pastoral care ministry if you find yourself in need of prayer, regardless for any, um, um, any concerns whatsoever, whether it's good or bad. Um, it's, a, it's a spiritual discipline that we want to encourage in praying for one another. So please come forward um, after service if you find yourself in need of prayer and um, someone will join you and, and pray for you. May I know who is the... Jeff and Miak will be the uh, people um, looking after you in prayer uh, this, um, this morning. Next, we have lunch kakis, just as important as prayer is food. <laughs> so um, if you are new with us, sometimes it's difficult to uh, find someone to have lunch with. We are usually adjourned to the coffee shop downstairs after, lunch, after service for lunch. So um, please join us. Uh, lunch kaki today is Chua. So she's raising her hand and will be standing at the back of the, the hall uh, to welcome you and bring you for lunch. So please proceed uh, and join her thereafter. Next up, we have Pauline, who has exciting announcements for our anniversary service. So, very exciting, right? Do you know what's happening next week? Next week is our 20th anniversary service. Yes, FCC is 20 years old, right? And it's uh, been an amazing, amazing journey that God has brought us on. And we would love for you to join us for this service. We will be having a lot of different guests as well. Uh, members who have been a part of us throughout our journey. We have also outside guests, uh, the friends and allies, people who have been walking with us in our journey as well. So do come join us. Bring your friends, bring your family. A um, couple of things that you can be engaged in doing, even as we move towards the anniversary service. If you look at the next slide, we have set up a gratitude wall. So this is on Padlet. Um, the short link is there, fcc.ly slash thanksgiving, or you can also um, scan the QR code. It'll bring you directly into this Padlet. As you see, that there are some people who have already start to, started to share. What I did was that um, we're kind of collecting stories, and we're collecting just words of gratitude, right? Gratitude, one, to God for God's hand at work. Gratitude for the stories that God has given you in your experience over perhaps this time at FCC, uh, and also maybe gratitude to people. I think sometimes we forget to thank the people that have been a huge part of our lives, especially our spiritual journey. And so maybe there are some people who have come to your mind that you say, I would love to thank them you know, for making certain things possible. And we thought that would be a great way for us to express gratitude to God and to one another. Um, 
for all that has gone on over these 20 years. So please uh, sign in, drop like short words of gratitude. It doesn't have to be very long. It can be very long as well if you want to, but just short words of gratitude so that we can be looking at this, especially um, at the service next week. Uh, so don't worry, your words will really be uh, conveyed right in many ways uh, next week. Okay. Another way you can um, participate, maybe you're not a words person, maybe you show your love through action, through cooking, through making desserts, okay? So for some of you, uh, you may, may not have heard of Charity Cafe, um, but Charity Cafe has been something that we've done over the years uh, in our history in FCC. What we've done was uh, invite um, our members to actually bring dishes, but this time around it's just a dessert, okay? And what we do is that we collect money uh, at, the end of the, uh, at the end of that buffet and then we'll usually donate that money for some kind of charity. So we had various charities that we were um, supporting uh, over the years. So this time around, I just want um, to invite you. We'll be having a catered lunch, okay? So we will have food, but we thought it would be a great way to complement it uh, if you wanted to bring uh, some kind of dessert to... Um, have everyone enjoy together, okay? And if you want to bring a dessert, please email info at Freecom Church so that we can kind of coordinate it and we know uh, how to demarcate space for it as well, all right? So many different ways you can participate, but most importantly, please come, uh, be present with us as we give thanks to God uh, for how God has guided us and led us over this um, past 20 years, okay? And now, um, will you stand in body and spirit for our benediction? God, you are love. You are love that is fully, holy, all that you are. And so God, whatever our understandings, what we've understood or have begun to understand about heaven and earth and hell, what we've begun to understand about you and ourselves and others, God, align our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies with that understanding of what it means to love and to be loved by you. God, transform our minds, renew our hearts, refresh our spirits, even as we go forth into this week and into the days ahead. And may our God of love go with you always and forever. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for service this week and please come join us next week, okay? Have a blessed week ahead. <laughs>